0: Courage to Hope is a program hosted by Tony LaGreca in an never ending battle for sobriety and to put an end to the stigma of the opioid epidemic. Join us each week, Thursday at 6 p.m., to find the courage to hope and how to learn to carry on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special episode of Courage to Hope. Your friend Ben, hosting this one because our special guest tonight, our very own Tony LaGreca, joining us here now live in studio. And of course, as always, Tony, it's been one heck of a week, but we're very happy to have you back here live in studio. We have a lot to cover. And folks, if you have any questions, comments, or stories that you'd like to share with Tony, 781-834-WMM. E X, All right, Tony, welcome aboard your own show. This is interesting yeah. being in the second seat today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Ben. Yes, uh, it's, it's always different being the one who's asking the questions as opposed to the one who's answering the questions.
0: Absolutely. And there's <clears throat> so much going on here. That's why we decided to do this tonight, because you are a wealth of knowledge on this subject. And for as many wonderful guests as we've had in the past few months, none better than the man with the plan himself. And we have a lot to start with, so let's jump right in. We're talking about the bill that you are working tirelessly on across this country to make a difference. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, we have a a bill called the Right to Know Act, Ben. And the whole theme behind the Right to Know is when a a child is 18 or younger, uh, they just get handed a script. They go to get their wisdom teeth out, and what do they get? They get a script for Percocets. Now, some dentists have finally figured it out and only give them one or two pills, uh, but there's others who are still giving them 30 pills, and depending on what state you're living in and what what's going on in that state uh, as far as the opioid epidemic is concerned. So in our bill, what it basically says is that if you're 18 or younger, you're the person who's prescribing these opioids, and that's like Percocets, Vicodin. Oxycontin, oxycodone. Usually for for a dentist, it's usually Percocets, sometimes Vicodin, depending on what they're doing. And they have to tell their best person's parent that they're prescribing a drug that that is harmful and has a strong chance of addiction if taken for more than 24 or 48 hours. And they have to sign off on it. The parents have to sign off on it. And what we found in the states, we right now we have 18 states that have, you know, put this into law within their state, that the dentist or the doctor can't can't give them a prescription unless the parent is notified. The parent has to sign off, knowing that it's a narcotic and it's highly addictive. And the dentist or the doctor also has to report back what other alternative medicines did you approach this patient with besides opioids, and that becomes a lot of pain. That's a pain in the neck for a doctor or a dentist. So most of them are going the right direction once the bill is in place. Now, Massachusetts, we've attempted to get this bill passed now for close to two years, and we finally, after about a year and a half, we've finally gotten it out of the, the health committee, and now it's in appropriations. So I think we're, we're, we're going to get there. And basically, we call it the Right to Know Act. Now, I wrote an opinion piece that's going to appear in newspapers across Massachusetts sometime in the next two weeks, I hope. And I'd like to read it for you so you can get an idea um, of why we're doing this. We must do more to curb the opioid epidemic. That's what it's titled. A record number of our fellow Americans, more than 75,000, died of an opioid overdose in the most recently measured one-year period, according to the National Center of Health Statistics. Here in Massachusetts, we lost 2,290 people in 2021 in the scourge of opioids, a nearly 10% increase from the year before. The continuing impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, along with the uncontrolled spread of fentanyl, are compounding the opioid epidemic and making it more deadly, leading to major increases in overdoses and dependence. These developments have reversed some of the hard-won gains we were beginning to make. We were going down. As a result, we must redouble our efforts. This begins with doing more to take on the problem at the source. The overprescribing of opioid painkillers, often without providing patients and parents with the real-time information, they need about the risk of dependence and addiction. As the National Opioid Commission states, we have an enormous problem that is often not beginning on street corners. It is starting in doctors' offices and hospitals in every state in our nation. I know firsthand just how costly this can be. My son, Matthew, was prescribed oxycodone for a football injury. The addiction that resulted led to years of struggle and suffering and eventually cost him his life and I have talked with too many other parents who had the same experience. Providing a timely warning at the point of initial prescription would have given us the information we needed to be on the lookout for early signs of dependence. Just as importantly, it would inform parents and patients upon non-opioid treatment options. Currently, there is a legislation being considered in the Massachusetts state legislation that, if adopted, will accomplish this important objective. H-4814, sponsored by Representative Carol Fioli, among others, requires a conversation about the risk of dependence and possible non-opioid pain relief alternatives before any opioid-based pain reliever is prescribed, ensuring that a conversation occurs between doctors and patients and parents at the time it is most needed, right before an opioid is prescribed, is a simple but extremely effective step that we know saves lives. In the 18 states where versions of this common-sense legislation have passed, it is driving down the number of opioid-based painkillers that are prescribed annually, preventing new instances of opioid use disorder and saving lives. In New Jersey, the first state to adopt this approach, for example, a Brandeis University study of the law impacts, found a major drop in the number of patients started on opioids and fourfold increase in and the number of doctors warning patients about the risk of addiction. Every patient, every parent, has the right to know the medicines they are about to receive can lead to dependency and addiction. Toward that end, I urge the Massachusetts state legislation to expeditiously pass H forty eight fourteen. It will help prevent, avoid deaths, and ruin lives. And this is a bill that I started with and. um Representative Fiore had something similar, so we decided to combine our efforts. And uh, we have Josh Cutler and from the Duxbury, uh, Pembroke area, and we also have Kathy Lenatra from Kingston and North Plymouth also on this and several others that have signed off on to it now.
0: Wonderful advocates, by the way. Both of them do amazing work in that field.
1: And the reason why I'm um, the way I am about this, um, when my son got addicted to opioids, I'm the one who filled the prescription. I had no idea what an opioid was, and it's gonna bother me for the rest of my life that I was dumbfounded about the whole thing. I just had no idea, and at that time, back in the 90s, it wasn't really a well-spoken thing, but it should have always been this way, should have always had to sign off on it if you know that it's, a, it's a, an opioid that is highly addictive. Of course, lots of things um, have happened, you know, since, since the 1990s regarding opioids. And kind of let me um, lay out the land here so you get an idea of what's going on. In uh, 1995, a company called Purdue Pharma, which was located in Stamford, Connecticut, and they have their, their president was Richard Sackler. And Richard Sackler's goal was to sell opioids to everybody in the country, and make billions of dollars. Well, he did succeed. But he used a lot of fraudulent methods and a lot of lying and a lot of everything to get where he is today. And in 1995, it really wasn't even approved by the FDA yet, but they started using it. And the biggest one was OxyContin. So you understand the difference. Percocet is mildest, then Vicodin, then OxyCodone, then OxyContin. And let's take the top two. Um, Oxycodone usually lasts about four hours. Uh, Then it wears off and you need another one. Or, you know, if you're taking 10 milligrams, you'll need to take two fives or one ten or whatever it is to to keep you out of the pain area. The oxycontin is a 12-hour release drug. And they were saying that, uh, Purdue was saying that if it's released over 12 hours, that the patient will not get any rush or high or anything by using it. And the big issue is this: 35 percent of all population roughly has the addiction um, has the addiction gene. So what that means is let's say you're bipolar, you're suffering from depression, variety of other things you could be could be bothering you and you get this pill and all of a sudden it feels euphoric. All of a sudden you feel, wow, this is what I've needed all my life because this is what it is. Now the other 70% take the pill, and after two days they say, I can't stand it. It it makes me feel like I'm somebody else. I really don't want this pill. And they just put it aside, and they don't even think about it. But this 35% or so think about it all the time. And now if you're on it for a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month – And now you say, I don't want to take this anymore. Well, guess what? Um, You're now addicted. And when you stop taking it, you're going to get sick. They call it dope sick. And dope sick is like the flu times 10. And it's very, very, uh, you're really, really sick. You have hot flashes. You have the sweats. uh, You're in the bathroom constantly. uh, You're throwing up. And it's brutal to get off of it. So you have to be weaned down. And very few doctors want to wean anybody off of opioids. They want to just give them cold turkey and that's and let them fend for themselves and hope for the best. But it doesn't work that way. Then that's when they go on the street and that's what they do, what they have to do. Either they buy it, they buy the pills from somebody selling it, or they switch to heroin. And you also need to know that heroin and Oxycodone and Oxycontin is pretty much the same formula. When you're taking, when you're, um, Taking an opioid, you're basically taking heroin. There is very little difference, if any, between the two. And uh, the opioids, most of them are artificial, um, where heroin comes from the poppy seed, but it's the same molecular formula. So you get the same high or the same rush or prevent you from having dope sick.
0: Which essentially, I mean, it's your body purging all that, uh, the things that it does not want from it. But as you said, it's a very... Violent, for a better lack of words, process that your body goes through when doing that. And uh, that is very important to know the difference between those things. Uh, Now, when you see the impact that this is having across the country, and you speak to some of the people that we've spoken to on the show and past episodes, uh, most notably, probably recently, Angelo Valente out of New Jersey, Uh, Can you speak to what partnerships like that have really been able to help you and the rest of the community trying to bring this epidemic to an end? uh, What strengths it's really been able to
1: do? Well, it can help what um, the Drug Free New Jersey has done. They've they've actually had a task force for about 30 years now, and they're the ones who came up with this idea originally uh, in a different kind of form but roughly the same way. Making sure that doctors inform the patients and inform the parents, if need be, of the opioid uh, dependency possibility going down. And as I said, they did it in 18 states. Just to give you an idea, uh, during the pandemic and its worst time, Massachusetts, the first year, went up almost 40 percent in deaths. Uh, a little slowed down the second year, and but New Hampshire and New Jersey, which I consider the two states that are closest to Massachusetts in, in all around, um, you know, the way the drug dependency and everything and the way it was introduced to this area. Both New Hampshire and New Jersey went down 10% during the pandemic, while the rest of the country went up. And we feel the biggest reason for that is these two states did not prescribe as much opioids. It's all about the prescriptions. If I told you how many prescriptions are done every year for opioid medicine, you're going to be quite shocked. Because I first thought, when I first was reading different books and magazines on this case, I thought maybe there was 300,000, 400,000, maybe even a million. Well, in uh, 2018, the medical industry wrote... 244 million prescriptions. Wow. That's enough prescriptions to give everybody in America 100 pills for a year.
0: Every man, woman, and child.
1: Yeah. And here's the sick part of it. The United States uh, is 4% of the population of the whole world. 4%. Yet we consume 85 to 88% of all opioids produced in the world. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the message is not going in the right way. And I've had I've been hospitalized a couple times in the last 4 months and all they want to do is push painkillers on you when you get in there. And you're lying in that bed and they say, "Oh, it's time for your meds." Well, what are you giving me? "Oh, I'm giving you tramadol." And I actually had a nurse tell me, "Oh, it's not addictive because it's an it's a
0: Anti-inflammatory or something like that? No,
1: nah, she she told me that it was a, it was synthetic. Because
0: that makes a difference, right? Yes, yeah, it makes
1: no difference. And I said, well, no thanks. I said, I don't want any. And next shift, bango. They're right back again. And the reason why is because hospitals get rated on pain management. So if I have to come back two days after I've um, been released because I've got suffering from pain, well, the hospital doesn't get paid any money from the government or the insurance companies for that two days I came back. And they don't want that to happen. They want to have a good rating. They want that, that old pain management to be five-star rating or something. And, you know, this is the, this is the deal that, um, that the, the hospitals have to put up with. And so until that attitude changes and the attitude of the doctors changes, um, the doctors are just going along with the hospital plan you know, this thing isn't going to stop. You can't give 244 million prescriptions and hope that people aren't going to get addicted because they, they it most certainly are going to get addicted.
0: Absolute madness. Now, uh, Tony, in your own opinion, do you think that's more of a hospital policy and the way that the law is written that they can operate? Or is this the insurance companies getting in hand in hand with these pharmaceutical companies? Which one is really more to not to say that anyone's innocent here. They're all guilty about this. But who's more to blame in this situation?
1: Oh, the I I would say the insurance companies. The insurance companies, you know, they allow, uh, they have it all written. And even the way uh, Medicare is written, they have it written that we'll pay for three days, we'll pay for five days. So if you're in for, even if, like I know, if you're in for Lyme disease, um, after three days, the hospitals don't get paid. Because that's it. That's what the limit is. They say three days you should, be fi- you should be healed. And that's why you go and have surgery now. And you might have surgery, and, and they might be allowed two days or three days, and they get a chunk of money for this particular surgery. And as soon as you're, you're released, uh, the hospitals can now use that bed. And for somebody else, and the hospitals get paid what they need to get paid. On the other hand, if the hospitals only get paid for three days and you're still there till five days that's a problem the insurance companies are like you know isn't happening
0: we're not getting paid for you anymore so uh, take your problems elsewhere basically
1: that's correct and Disgusting. so many different directions to go with this subject um, I was trying to think about it today which what what angle we want to talk about and um, the first thing I would mention that if you really want to get a good um, visual and a good understanding of of this watch First of all, watch the pharmacist. That's on Netflix. On Netflix, um, Dan Snyder is the pharmacist, and and despite the fact that his his son did die from a uh, from a bad drug bust and he got killed, but the more I think the bigger part of that pharmacist is is he is a pharmacist, so he saw how many prescriptions he was filling, and he's filling prescriptions, and then. Three months later, he sees these same people that he's filling prescriptions for on the obituary page. And a great number of them were between 18 and 25 years of age. And a lot of those people, again, going back to percentages, about 80, 85% of people who get addicted get it originally from a prescription. That's how they get started. You know, nobody says, oh, I'm going to get out of bed today and go look for some fentanyl and, and uh, hope I die from it or something. They, they're doing it because they're, they're looking for drugs because they're addicted, and they're addicted because they got a prescription. They got started, and after 30 or 60 days, whenever that doctor stopped giving them prescriptions, they had to find alternatives because unless that doctor treated them, that was a problem. You know, you've got to get treatment. You've got to be able to come off of it, and you can either come off of it by, if you're on 80 milligrams of oxycontin, you could go down to 60s, 40s, 20s, and then off. And then you don't, the dope sick, you might be a little sick, but if you do it right and it's over four weeks, four weeks, four weeks, um, but you have to be determined, and your doctor has to be determined. Um, And so, but it gets to the point where now it's so confused that the, the, the drug stores are questioning what's happening. I mean, Walgreen and just the state of Florida has to pay six hundred and eighty five million dollars on a settlement that the state of Florida sued them for filling prescriptions that they knew that they knew were from people who were actually addicted and not recently being treated for some sort of major disease.
0: That's crazy. I mean, uh, the situation is easily equatable to A standard bar scenario, bartenders are specifically trained to spot people who have either had too much, are reaching whatever limit they are based on height and weight and just at a glance, and they're then trained on how to actively disengage that person. And when that time comes where, hey, this person's just had enough, that's really what needs to be happening. That step does not happen anywhere in this process, and like you said, Tony, It just goes and goes and goes. And as long as someone's making money along the line, it continues.
1: Absolutely. And here's the big thing. In 1995, when the drug first came out, OxyContin, it was supposed to be for end-of-life care. People were dying of cancer and and just terminal illnesses that we're never going to recover from. And I totally agree. It's a good thing for that. And much as I dislike saying it, the... It actually is a drug that kind of escalates the problem. I mean, we have in this country, you know, we don't have any euthanasia for, for people, to say. But it acts that way because when the person, they put them in comfort care and they haven't died in a week, what's the first thing they do? They up the opioid dose. And what will end up happening is they'll go to sleep and their heart will stop and their brain will stop. Or the lungs
0: will stop, or Everything one. stops, and yeah.
1: that's the end of it. And, and that's, that's what happens to, in that situation. But unfortunately, like with my son, he got addicted, went to rehab, came out of rehab, got back and addicted again. He went to rehab at least three or four times. And then we finally got him on the methadone <clears throat> treatment. Now methadone is a drug that, uh, the way it works... It's a, it's basically a, a, an opioid blocker. Even though it is an opioid, it's an opioid blocker because Narcan, which is what brings people back that have overdosed, there is some Narcan in methadone, so that if you uh, try to take, it, it blocks it, so you don't get high, you don't get. And again, after two or three weeks, you get to get this part straight. Nobody's trying to get high; they're just trying to sustain, because you you don't get high. You're just sustaining it so you don't get opio you don't get dope sick. But um it's lost a, my train of thought here.
0: It's a terrible circle and a vicious one at that, Tony, like you were saying. On that note, we're actually gonna step aside for a brief moment. We're gonna take a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back with more courage to hope live here on WMEX fifteen ten, Quincy, Boston. I felt so alone, scared, angry, full of self pity. I just wanted to die, so I took another drink. Then I heard about AA and went to my first meeting. The people there talked about those same feelings. I was no longer alone. They gave me help to stop drinking and hope to start living. Visit AA.org for more information and download the Meeting Guide app to find a meeting near you.
1: Tony LaGreca here. I want to tell you about a special event coming this October. Finding Hope in Grief is a support conference scheduled to take place on October 22nd and 23rd at the Doubletree Hilton in Westboro, Mass. The conference is for anyone who lives or works in Massachusetts and is bereaved by the death of a loved one from substance use. If you are interested in attending the conference and sharing a weekend of hope, healing fellowship, and remembrance, sadod.org. The conference is sponsored by the Department of Public Health, and the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services, also supported by the Adcare Educational Institute. Again, that's sadod.org to register and sign up early.
0: That smile you wear when you listen to MeTV music tells the world how much you enjoy the timeless and memorable songs we play. But you can make it clear how you feel when you put on one of our cool new MeTV music t-shirts. Classic t-shirts from artists and events such as Elvis, Billy Joel, and Woodstock and brand new designs from MeTV FM. Enjoy your timeless and memorable favorites 15% more by spending 15% less with our MeTV music sale. Go to MeTV.com and click on the store tab and use promo code MUSIC15. Welcome back to Courage to Hope, live here on WMEX. Your friend Ben here live in studio with Tony LaGreca, and we have a lot more to go, folks. So if you have any questions, if you'd like to get involved, 781-834-WMEX. Tony, we return now to the same subject. We're talking about the opioid epidemic and how we can help bring that stigma Away from where it is now, so that people can understand they're not alone, and this is not a subject to keep quiet about. It's not something to hide at home, not like it used to be, and we don't want to lose one more soul to this scourge.
1: Well, thank you, Ben. Um, yeah, the situation now has actually gone from bad to worse, and I'm going to get—I'm going to specify that you know, give you an idea of what I'm talking about. But the big thing I want to tell you, from 1995 to 1999, most of the oxycodone and oxycontin um, were used for that end-of-life care or for some critical surgeries, that sort of thing. Well, the FDA, which actually uh, formulates and writes the information that's in the packages when you get your prescriptions filled, were pressured by uh, Richard Sackler and and the Sackler family to change the recommendation and go from having it be a set of being an end of life drug to being a drug that's for everything, any kind of pain, Um, because it's supposed to be so wonderful and everything. So around 1999, it changed. But I want to tell you, there's a guy by the name of uh, David Kessler. And David Kessler worked for the FDA. And he's the one that was supposed to be the one who was going to write this thing. But we know now through a lot of uh, documentations that the that David Kessler actually had people from Purdue Pharma help him write it. I don't even know how much he wrote at all. And he was the one who pushed it to get it through. Now, the FDA is supposed to be, you know, Food, Drug Administration. They're supposed to be protecting the American people, but it didn't quite work out that way. One of the biggest flaws is this. David Kessler, he re- rewrote the... the the, paper, you know, the paperwork inside the prescriptions, and he had it signed off by, by the uh, Sackler family in Purdue Pharma. Well, right after he got that done, he quit working for the FDA, went out to California, worked for somebody for 18 months, so it didn't look too obvious. Then he came back and he went to work for the Sackler family, and they gave him a $400 million bonus for—I mean, am sorry, $400,000 bonus. For signing, for signing up. And they gave him a job that's way, way, uh, they've overpaid him.
0: Beyond his level of where he way should Way beyond his
1: level. Because they rewarded him for helping them out. And because he's the one that actually really helped create this drug. And, you know, so the FDA, you know, they have an advisory committee and they have people that tell the taught people at the FDA what they rec- what they recommend. And um, more recently, in the past 10 years, there was another opioid that came out. And the woman who was running the FDA at the time, out of 13 of her associates, 11 said, don't approve this drug. It was another high-performance opioid drug. Don't approve it. And she approved it anyway. This is... Uh, Mrs. Wilcox, and she did this and she approved it. And her boss was recently um, put up to be the one to take over the FDA under the Biden administration, and uh, I'm part of another group called FedUp, in which we, had, we advise the, um, the government and, and we push uh, the drug companies to take things off the market, or we make it well-known before they try to get it on the market how dangerous the drug is. And after all of that, she still approved it.
0: Unbelievable.
1: And you might remember a drug called Opana, and that was taken off because it was... uh, You know, the problem with this whole thing is is, there's many, many different things. But let's say somebody thinks that they're taking a pill and it's for uh, a headache, and it's in the medicine cabinet. They said, oh, so-and-so takes these, and I know it's when he's got a headache or something. And let's say it's a... We're talking now... 100 or 200 milligram opioid, right? That's it. One pill will kill you because you're not used to it. It's not, you have no body. Your body is not brought up to that point.
0: Literally, your body has no idea what to do with what you just put in it.
1: Right. And then we had a a guest a while back uh, named Ed Bish, and his son was at a high school graduation party, his senior party, and... They they had um, very high uh, eighty milligram or hundred and twenty milligram Oxycontin, and his son took one, and wasn't a drug, wasn't a drug addict, but he was looking for a party time and wanted to feel good, so he took one and chuggled it down with a beer, and that was his last day of his life. So just to have these things in your medicine cabinet is extremely dangerous, even if there's no intent to become addicted or anything, just having them there. And I've always told people, if you have any kind of opioids in your medicine cabinet, or sleeping pills even, what you need to do, because most sleeping pills, by the way, are opioids. A lot of people don't know that. It's a certain percentage of opioid. If you have those in your house, and for some reason you want to keep them, you should treat them like a handgun with bullets in it. Lock them up. Yeah, that's it. Lock them up. Put them in a safe. Don't put them in your medicine cabinet. Because I had somebody even at my own house who came to do some plumbing in my bathroom. And at the time, my wife was sick, and we had some um, opioids in the house. And after, the, um, after the, the two guys left, the pills were gone. And how do you prove that? You can't prove that. And I learned right from that time, no, don't have them in the house Right. Lock them up if you're going to be using them. Fine, but lock, put them under lock and key. Mm. You cannot do that, you know. And so, again, moving along in 2007, um, there was finally a lawsuit brought against the Sacklers, and again, money made the difference. And they they just can't get, you know, the government just can't get used to um, filing lawsuits, especially felony charges against drug manufacturers. At that time, they just couldn't do it because it just isn't done. You don't normally, you know, uh, go after doctors and they're supposed to be the highly respected people in the community. So most people, you know, they trust that person. And you look at some of the rallies and you'll see a lot of, a lot of posters that say, my son's drug dealer wore a lab coat. And, you know, that's because they're the ones that introduced them to the opioids to begin with, uh, a doctor. And a doctor who was, Never trained much. They used to get eight hours training on addiction Which after six nothing. years. Six years of medical training, they get eight hours, you know, on addiction, and not good, you know. So by the way, when when I went down to the to um, the FDA and I did a speech, um, my second speech, I talked about if the FDA had done their job, you know, this epidemic would be over, because think about it. You know, pandemics, they, they come in, they're airborne. And that's kind of disease airborne. This disease isn't airborne. This disease comes from a prescription bottle at your local pharmacy. And all they have to do is stop filling the bottles. And that's a big part of it. That's but it. Now, now we've gone into another phase, though. Uh, this right now, now the phase is getting more critical because there's now, during the pandemic, Hope uh, heroin didn't come into the country. That was actually as good as, as bad as heroin is, it's actually, is better than what we're dealing with today. And what we're dealing with today is fentanyl. And fentanyl is coming into this country in pounds, hundreds and hundreds of pounds or kilos of fentanyl. And these drug cartels control so much of what goes on in Mexico that, um, Mexico, the Mexican government isn't going to stop them.
0: It's powerless. They can't.
1: That's right, because they are, the, they are the power, because the money always talks. The money always talks. And now it's a political thing in our country about the uh, immigration and about illegals coming into the country, coming over the border from Mexico. And here's, here's where the misconception is. When a when a person comes over the drugs over when they have drugs and let's say they're they're these people who are crossing the border uh, or across the desert and doing that because there's no wall, what does that mean? Well, they they're going to cross, but you know something? They, that they didn't they didn't walk all the way from Guatemala with two bags of of uh, anything illeg- they can put in it
0: <laughs> illegal fentanyl.
1: No, they didn't do that, but the cartels got them to do it. Somehow they're holding something hostage or something over them. They want them to do it. And basically, what they are is expendables because they're a diversion. In this country, we're so cuckoo about about stopping all the borders. And we need to do that. I'm not the first, I'll tell you, I wouldn't be the last one to hear. We need to do that. But we need to do it the right way because the cartels, they send the person over with the opioids and it's nothing. It's just a couple of bags. It's maybe a. $10,000 $10,000 worth of stuff. You've got to make it look good, right? And they get arrested and so forth. And, and now everybody thinks that's how the opioids are coming into this country. Not so. If you go down to the border, and you go down to either Tijuana, Mexico, or you go down to Laredo, Texas, or any of these places that are down by the, by the border, there are thousands, not hundreds, thousands of trailer trucks filled with product coming into the United States that are made by legitimate companies, you know, people who are creating their even, they make vacuum cleaners, they make windows, they make all kinds of stuff in Mexico because the labor is cheaper. Well, they only, they don't check every truck. They can't even come close to it because everybody, then they soon as they say, well, you got to stop it and check every truck. Well, that takes three and a half to five hours of trying to get in and the pressure that the government gets, the the local reps and everything say, oh, I got to get my product, and we're out of product. We have the supply chain is blah, blah, blah. Well, every, every so many of those are crooked, and they get thousands of, of fake pills. And these guys, when they make these pills, they don't know how much fentanyl they're putting in them. They have no idea. And they don't seem to care either, even though 10 or 15 percent of these people die right right away I mean their clients die if they take fentanyl take a a fake oxycontin pill that's laced with fentanyl because um, fentanyl is about a hundred times stronger than oxycontin is so you talk about a pill that puts you to sleep it puts you to sleep all right and you're never going to wake up so now we have two problems we have the border where the where the people coming up from the Central America are kind of trying to cross and we have our everyday, truck drivers, and even cars that are going in and out. Now the second part of the problem is coming the other way. How much are we checking for coming the other way with the people who have bags of cash? Because drug dealers don't deal in credit cards, they deal in cash. And that money is going back into this, into Mexico. And of course there's banks there that will get their hands out ready to launder that money. So we have to stop the flow of money. That's the the only way this is ever going to stop. And I I don't see how anything's going to work. You could build a wall. That'll help. But at the other side, what are you going to do about the thousands of trucks that are crossing the border every day that have bags of fentanyl in it?
0: And we're not even talking about the hundreds upon thousands of tunnels that are continuously found in various spots all along the line. Same thing. If you shut down the roads, there's always going to be another way.
1: Yes, correct. So the biggest thing you have to do is you have to stop the spigot. And where does the spigot start? The spigot starts at Walgreens, CBS, Rite Aid. Right there is the Osco drug. Right there is the spigot. If the doctor stops prescribing, there'll be no demand for fentanyl, no demand for fake Oxycontins. And and that's what's going to make a difference.
0: Let me ask you a quick question here, Tony. And I'm sure uh, other people listening right now are wondering the same thing. What is the incentive? For doctors to continue to sign these prescriptions. Why don't they just stop knowing full well what's happening in this country?
1: First of all, they're going back to the 90s. If there were doctors who were in their 40s or 50s, um, they just don't, they still don't get it. That's all I can tell you. They're brainwashed that, that they don't take care of pain management, that that they're going to get recommended, and they're going to get a bad rating, and they're going to get not going to get five stars. They're going to get two stars or three stars And If they get written up, then the government—the government—is the problem. They're—they're they're still monitoring doctors for how much they're doing with pain management, and this is what we've got to. This is the thing that's got to be the biggest thing that we have to stop. Is that right there? You know. Mm. Now there are other places now that are out there that you can go and you can get your fentanyl tested, get a test fentanyl. They actually have fentanyl test strips where if you have drugs, you can wipe it and see if it's got any fentanyl in it.
0: Can at least know how much is in it one way or the other. So that yeah, is just, one way to help, I guess. It's just
1: like the test strips, the things that you do for for the COVID, you know. If it turns pink, you're in trouble, you know. No, you not good. T- but that still means, doesn't mean they're not going to take it. They might know, but, you know, if they're still, if they're getting dope sick and they're getting weak, well, I'm strong. I can handle it. I can take it. You know, that's that's the biggest thing.
0: Right, or they check it out and they go, oh, okay, this one's a little stronger. I'll just break this one in half and do that way, which is just as awful, honestly. That's
1: correct. You know, um, and, you know, when my son died, I went on a mission. And my mission is to, first and more foremost, is to educate people who are out there that <clears throat> need to know that that person that died of a drug overdose down the street, your daughter could be next. Your son could be next. It doesn't matter. If your daughter's in a car accident, playing sports, gets an appendicitis, there's all kinds of ways that doctors give prescriptions for opioids. And you gotta know, every prescription, you should not ever fill it until you know exactly what it is. And you read about it, and I don't mean read about it on some crazy website. You know, if you have to, you have to read about it three or four different places so you really get the true story. Mm. But you didn't need to know if it's a narcotic, it's addictable. It's going to create, a, it could cause you to have addiction problems. Now, do you no, have,
0: do you have websites or sources that you would say are a little bit more trustworthy? Obviously, we're not just going to go to Facebook and type in opioid and do whatever research there. Well, places like WebMD, for example, where it actually breaks down the scientific background behind it. Are those kind of sites trustworthy?
1: I I think so. They are. Uh, CDC um, is another one that you could go to and see what the status is about a certain drug or any sort, you know. Um, And, you know, it's, again, if you're not sure, you need to ask. You know, you can always ask the pharmacist, is this an opioid? If you have any doubt, you ask the pharmacist. And no matter what they say, you know, uh, they're selling it, you know, so... You know, most pharmacists though don't own the drugstore, so they're going to be upfront with you and, and honest with you. Uh, Dan Schneider, when he, in the pharmacist in the in the movie, he would educate the people that were trying to fill prescriptions that that um, you know this is highly addictive and you're going to this is not going to end well. There's no way it can end well. And one of the worst things is if the opioids, if you're really taking it for pain. And you're taking 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams, two or three times a day. Um, you know, over time, that's they're not going to work. They're going to, and they're going to say, well, you need to up the up the dose. And that that's like,
0: that just makes it
1: worse. Already it does, a terrible but that's but, worse. but that's what they tell people a lot. You need to up the dose. And the reality is, no, you're not going to. You shouldn't up the dose. You should be off of it, and you should have a second alternative. Mm-hmm. You know, there are lots of things to help reduce pain. Um, and, and there are other countries that they just don't do opioids. So how do they survive? Well, they survive by sucking it up.
0: Right. You see it on T-shirts. Pain is weakness leaving the body, and that's also the body's natural response to fixing right. those problems.
1: That's right. Your brain will help you get better quicker. Um, I want to talk about, before we run out of time, Ben, I want to talk about uh, bereavement groups. Now, I'm... I found that once my son died, that I needed to go to a place where I needed help. I needed a therapist, and I needed, um, I needed a, to be with a grief group with other parents. And I didn't know that at the time. But when I went to my therapist, he said to me, "Oh, you need. You should be in a grief group where you can be with other people who are going through the same thing you are, because in a grief group, basically what what it, it is 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 your peers. It's people who have the same." problem and they're dealing with other things. And it's, it's critical to understand what a grief group is. It's not a, it's not, you know, you're not on trial. You're not, they're not saying to you, you're a bad parent or something, because they all have the same problem. Their children die too. And the stigma, that's what you said 40 minutes ago, the stigma. The stigma is a real problem. Um, It's, it's like, you know, you have, a tumor or you have cancer or you have even type 2 diabetes you're not looked at the same way as if you're an addict people don't understand the disease of addiction and the opioids just they they rob the endorphins of your brain and that's what that's what it people back into it because it creates artificial endorphins and it controls the front lobal part of your brain and people say why don't you just quit well, you can't just quit. Doesn't work that way. Why don't you just stop eating, so you can lose weight? Right. Doesn't work totally that way. Totally same thing, right? It doesn't work that way. <laughs> Not you know? even
0: close. No. Right.
1: I mean, you see these people who spend half their paycheck um, doing that thing in the bar rooms there. What is it? The deal with they pay a dollar or two dollars and got to get five or six numbers. Oh, uh, keno. Keno. Yep. Yeah. Well. I know people that that can't stop going to Keno. Well, that's addiction, because that's a, that's a high that they get when they win, and everybody's looking. They're going for that high. That's that's a that's a human thing here. We're all going for the high. That's right. You know,
0: Ted Williams chasing that same feeling in that first high school home run that he hit way back when he was quoted as to saying, "I've been chasing that feeling my whole career."
1: 1939. So he uh, was in high school. Unbelievable. So, yeah. Um,
0: so let's talk more about this group because we have a, a large conference coming up on just this. And, folks, you heard uh, Uncle Tony talking about this throughout the broadcast uh, all week yeah. long and all month long. S-A-D-O-D dot org. Tell us about the conference.
1: Yes, this is going to be a two-day conference in October. I think it's the 22nd and 23rd. And basically it's going to be different speakers and everybody who's invited has got to be a parent of someone who lost a child through substance use disorder. So you sign up, you sign up, and you go there. You don't ever have to talk to anybody or anything. You go and you listen, and you hear other stories. You hear what it's like. And this is, as say, a, a two-day event, and that teaches people how to deal. Now, there's different ways. Some people, this is where... People who know somebody who's died of it from addiction and they know the family, no one knows how to really deal with the family. And, you know, uh, you know, some people say you, you, you need to move on, you know, you need to move on. Well, you can go forward, but you bring the, the, the loss with you, you know, you can, you know, you can look at, it'll get a little easier down the road, but it's never going to go away. Never, and, and you have to know how to deal with, the, like if it's your, your relative that has the person who has lost somebody, you know, just listen to them. Don't judge them. Just listen to them. And don't tell them that they have to be, come on, get on with your life. No, that doesn't work that way. People say, I, I used to hear, oh, are you over it yet? No, I didn't have a cold. My son died. Of all the insensitive
0: big things I think I've ever heard in my life. Like,
1: There's a big difference. Oh, you're still going to the cemetery? Yeah, some people go to the cemetery for the rest of their life because they need to do that to get on with their life. It's not like they've got a problem. It's not the problem. This is what they want to do so that they can cope, right. and that's what you have to do. And and you know, and, and on holidays, we were just discussing it in a grief group that I'm still working with, um, the other day it was Father's Day. You know, it's the worst day of the year for the father who, or Mother's Day for the parent who's lost a child. It's the two worst days. You think Christmas is bad or you think that that um, Thanksgiving is bad and stuff like that. Now, those are normal holidays. But Father's Day, the emphasis is on the father. The emphasis is on the is on the mother on Mother's Day. And, you know, they say, oh, have a happy Mother's Day. No, have a Mother's Day. Right. You know, do the best you can tomorrow. I understand. I feel where you're at today. Uh, I get text messages from other parents, especially on the women's side, because I have more of the grief groups. There's way more women than men. And that's another thing that deeply concerns me. In Massachusetts alone, in the past two years, we've had over 4,000 opioid deaths. Mm. 4,000. Well, 4,000, that means there's, 4,000 dads, 4,000 moms who have lost a child, okay? That's a, that's a huge number. You throw in New Hampshire and you throw in um, Rhode Island and people within our listening area, um, you're talking about 7,000.
0: Or more, God yeah. forbid.
1: So, And I know all the grief groups in Massachusetts pretty much, and I can tell you there's less than 100 men total in all those grief groups. Less than 100. So these guys are trying to take it on their own, and they're trying to they hold it in. And we call that John Wayne syndrome. Oh,
0: yeah. If you're
1: old enough to remember John Wayne. He's supposed to be the tough guy and so forth.
0: The strong pillar, and, the backbone of a, the household. And a lot
1: a lot of men feel that they failed, and it's their weakness. Well, right now, the, the number one age of suicide in America is males from 50 to 58. And I'm willing to bet, if you follow back and you look at the situation, somebody in their, in their circle passed away, and chances are it was a child. I hear about it all the time when somebody some someone died, and right away the father didn't feel he did the right thing and all that. Within two weeks, they commit suicide. Not two years, two weeks, because they, they're so worried about the stigma and what is the people going to think about me at work and what's going to happen and all that kind of stuff, you know. Now you know, and and um, those,
0: it, those just aren't the kinds of things that we, especially as a society, should be keeping to ourselves like that. And like you said, you know, the percentage of men out there that will even step forward to admit that they're having any type of emotional response to these kinds of things. I mean, goodness gracious, the loss of a a loved one is one thing. The loss of a child, I don't have to tell you, Tony, that is a next level issue right there. That you never ever truly can deal with. But like in your case, you can help others in that situation. And by putting that hand out and reaching out to everyone, obviously we all know uh, the ladies have no problem sharing those emotions. Men do. And those mental health groups, the grief groups, all of them play such a pivotal role
1: in that. That's correct. And again, it's so if you have somebody in your circle that's in this situation reach out to them especially on holidays how are you doing is there anything i can do to help that's what they want to hear they don't want you to if you if you're ignoring them i heard men tuesday night and i was on with a bunch of guys and i heard how many of them were in, it, they were in pain emotionally because oh my brother it was, you know it was two week two years ago or three years ago and They don't talk about this child anymore and so they feel that what's going on is they they think it's over or something or they well they don't it's not front and front and center for them you know so uh, you got to reach out to them see if you can help in any way Uh, if it's really recent bring them a meal come over with food food always is good is a is a good sign bring them food that's Pretty, pretty important you like, know?
0: like you said earlier too probably one of the most important parts of helping someone in that situation is leaving your own personal comments at the door like you said do not tell them how to feel don't suggest how they should feel just shut up and listen
1: that's right you say that very well Ben <laughs> thank you so um, the the other thing going back to this event um, it's going to be at the Double tree Hotel. Uh, in the town near Worcester, um, I forget what it, which one it is. It's Shrewsbury. Or, uh,
0: no, yes. No, it's
1: one of those towns. Look this up right now but, for you. But go on the website and register. You have to register because um, the Mass Health is paying for this, and they're only going to have 200 available uh, seats. Us. And so you, you need to sign up. And you, you register. If you register, then... Eventually, there will be an announcement when when you technically sign up and get a ticket or whatever they're doing. I'm not 100% sure. And
0: the best way to do that, folks, and Tony, you were right, it's actually the double tree over in Westboro. That's 5400 Computer Drive, Westboro, Mass., and you can simply go to sadod.com org and there's a registration button right there front and center there's also links to amazing resources grief groups quick guides you need help right now there are options for that and again that website is sAdOD.org. org
1: and you, you can actually get to this this hotel from like all the major routes in massachusetts because it's right in the middle it's right next to Worcester. It's right off of Route 90. It's right off of Route 9. It's right off of Route 146. Coming from Lemonster or Fitchburg, it's right off of uh, 290. It's coming from the other direction. It's right off of 190. You can't miss it. You can, I don't think even if you were way out in Hyannis, um, you could actually get to this. It never would take you more than an hour and 20 minutes. And you can spend the night on the first night. Um, there's special rates for the hotel uh, for this event. So you can book a room and stay there. And you'll be with your peers. You'll be with people who are all in the same boat that you're in. And that, that's really, really important. So, and,
0: Tony, before we run out of time, can you just let folks know where they can find more information about the bill that we have so close to actually becoming reality? And how can people support that bill?
1: Uh, what I really need everybody to do is to call their local rep and their local senator and the bill, the House number again is number 4814, 4814. And it's the right to know. It's it's kind of, uh, it's in this situation where it's, it's hard to, which we call it the Right to Know Act. But they don't have a technical title. They just call it Heist, House Bill number 4814. And just call them up. Call up your senator and say, you support this bill and you'd like them to support it. It's that, it's that simple. We're going to. We're going to be really advertising it as it's coming up for a vote. I, I can't get an answer because I think everybody's on vacation this week.
0: Probably this I, week, yeah. Yeah, I wanted
1: to get a to find out when when the vote was going to come, and it probably won't come until it's out of the Appropriations Committee. Um, but uh, just tell your friends, tell everybody, just please make us make one little call, and you could be saving a life. You could be preventing some 16-year-old from getting Percocets while they have their wisdom teeth out. You know, little ice, little ibuprofen—it's all you need to get when you have a tooth pulled. It's not a—it's not a big deal. You know, they make it sound like it's a big deal, but it's not. So true. You know? So true. Just and like any
0: other medical uh, adversity, one might add. Uh, you just need to deal with it, as we all do in life. In that regard. Um, yes,
1: and um, so I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to talk about the um, the. Sackler and Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, but I'm, I'm hoping soon that we will have uh, our Attorney General will be coming on, Maura Healey, and as an Attorney General, not for anything else she's running for. I only care about what we're going to talk about, but where do we stand with the bankruptcy and when can these people in this state get some money? And um, that's that's our, that's our biggest move right now because when the money comes out and the states get these, these big checks, they're going to all get couple hundred million, I guess, um, that money is going to go for recovery. It's going to go for the living in recovery and maybe to help some parents who had to pay for one, two funerals. You know, that's, that's where the goal is here, to get that money and, and put it where it's going to help the most. And, you know, having, having people getting money to get into recovery is the most important thing. Anybody you can get into recovery, and if it's alcohol, get them to go to AA. There's a variety of different things, but get them into recovery and go to detox. Once they've been detoxified, then they can, then you can you'll have no problem. Uh, then you, then you have a chance to, to, to get them into recovery and stay there. You know, I know I know several people who are 15, 20 years now into recovery. So it can happen. Don't ever give up because if you give up and you end up on the other side where you're one of the parents, who's lost a child. I can tell you, it's 10 times worse than anything you're going through right now.
0: Tony, I want to thank you for your time as always here, giving everybody the courage to continue to hope. Thank you very much.
1: You're welcome, Ben. Thank you for hosting.